Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. Today, I'm joined by a longtime and close friend, political ally, usually, <laughs> and one of the most interesting writers on not just politics, but foreign policy, national security today, Tom Nichols. He's a contributing writer at The Atlantic and the author of a new book, Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. I told Tom, Basically, he and I have bi-weekly grouch sessions, sadly remote in the days of COVID, where we just kind of complain about the state of everything. And I figured, why not just push record on one of them and also let him flog his book? Tom, good to see you again, buddy. And uh, congrats on the new book. As I said, I, I've read much of it, but not all of it because sort of the era of distraction and I'm, I'm working on my own book at the moment. But I mean, look, I know what you argue in this thing because you've been arguing this to me on the phone forever. Tell us, <laughs> tell us why we're our own worst enemy and why the United States is even more fucked up than people realize. Yes. Welcome to another edition of Grumpy Old Men. Um, <laughs> old man yells at cloud. Part man. <laughs> it's the children who are wrong. Uh, yeah. Thanks for having me, Michael. I started to actually think about this when I was writing The Death of Expertise because I was writing this book about why don't people listen to experts and why does everybody think, you know, they're so smart and why have we become this kind of weirdly narcissistic, I did my own research, I make my own decisions kind of society. And every time I talked about it, people would say, you know, what does this say about democracy? And I would find myself saying, yeah, nothing good. This doesn't end well. And in fact, it, over time, as people wanted to hear more about this death of expertise problem, they would say, can you talk about this and democracy? And I, as I said at the outset of our own worst enemy. I said, you know, this problem was lurking underneath other things I was writing. And so about uh, two years or so ago, two and a half years, I said, well, maybe I ought to just think about this, this problem of illiberalism, which, you know, you and I, as Eastern Europe, Russia guys, um, you know, have been watching with horror for 30 years as these democratic experiments and places like Poland and Hungary, and even sometime to some extent in the Czech Republic seem to be rising and then falling under these populist, you know, kooks and authoritarians. I wrote the book because I just wasn't satisfied with the explanations. If you talk to people on both the right and the left, you get these very facile hand waves about, well, you know, it's globalization. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's economic inequality. It's climate change. Someone actually said that, well, you know, it's climate change. That's why people are upset about democracy. Of course, you know, 10 minutes of talking to the average voter tells you that the average voter, for rightly or wrongly, doesn't doesn't really care about, especially the illiberal average middle class voter doesn't care about things like climate change or inequality. We're all getting dumber because the humidity is going up, right? It's not the heat. Or it's, uh, you know, well, it's that uh, governments haven't provided solutions. And so, I mean, it's it's this notion that everybody is Greta Thunberg or something. And, and that's just not, that's not reality. And so I said, but if it's not, if those arguments aren't really holding water, what is doing it? And I think I came back to the same explanation, which is that it's a combination of the environment, which is a long period of peace, prosperity, affluence. People don't like to hear that, but we are in fact living in a peaceful and affluent time in the 21st century and this growing problem of narcissism that really starts 40 or 50 years ago. You know, it's interesting, uh, sorry to interrupt, but years and years ago, and, and uh, let me break some news about my friend, Tom Nichols. You and I were talking about, how do I put this? Because I, I, I don't want to sound like you're some sort of knockoff of Jordan Peterson. You're, you're far from that. But we were talking about sort of the crisis of raising disciplined and competent and accountable young men in particular, right. like there was something going on. There was something in the, in the, in the ether, in the water. And I mean, I, this is more on my generation and you 
okay boomer looking at you know people like myself i guess i'm a geriatric millennial they call it or i prefer late generation x or last generation x i'm kind of a tail end you you're, know you're both tail end boomer and, that's more yeah. like a generation jones guy than a boomer but right so but you you wrote this piece for the daily beast which i commissioned and edited about sort of the crisis of masculinity in america but again not in a kind of iron john let's go out into the woods and pound your your guys didn't want it and they didn't want it right but i thought it was it was prescient and and i think this kind of feeds into your broader analysis and because it's not it's not just confined to American young men who are disaffected or narcissistic or you know entitled grandiose yeah yeah it's everybody now and it's not and it's as you point out in this book I mean this is this spans multiple hemispheres yes that's one of the things I think is really important for people to understand this isn't just a kind of a bitch session about hey you know what's what's wrong with all these silly voters over the past five years I mean, look, I'm a political scientist. I'm a comparativist. I began my career, as you know, you know, doing the Soviet Union and East Central Europe. You know, what really struck me was how alike these movements are in Poland and Italy and the United Kingdom and Turkey and Brazil and India. And, you know, democracy is under attack. And what really, when you start looking into the data and looking at voting behavior and who's doing this, it's not the poor, you know, and downtrodden of the earth. They're actually pretty big fans of democracy because that's what protects them. It's a bored middle class. It's a kind of a dull, you know, sort of loose, generically pissed off middle class that thinks life should be more interesting and that they should all be the stars of their own action movies. You know, January 6th, I mean, it's it's really interesting that I did not write this book about Trump or January 6th as a central focus. January 6th happens literally as I am shipping the book off and I have to pull it back at the last minute before it goes to press. One of the reasons the damn thing is full of typos, um, I'm even having a contest for people to spot a, a factual error in it, is you know I had to pull it back and start rewriting some of this to say, this is what I'm talking about, this thing that just happened just before it went to press. But the January 6th people were like the living embodiment of this. Hey, I'm a bored real estate agent who's going to you know take a flight, a chartered flight, and um, you know, have this like day camp outing of sedition, or you know, hey, I know I've been arrested and I'm standing for a federal magistrate, but I really need to go to a work retreat in Mexico. Can you let me off the hook? Yeah, this was not a creed decor of the working class, which was no. sort of how both the left and the right wanted to frame it for a bit. This was this was what it, what did you call it? The lumpen bourgeoisie. Lumpen bourgeoisie. Yeah, yeah they, the I, I mean, there are intellectuals of the right and the left, and activists on the right and the left who dearly wish this was some kind of working class movement, but it really isn't. This is partly why I wrote it, because people would say, well, you know, globalization, economic anxiety. And, And I'm like, you know, we would have bought that up to about two years ago, but we have the data. We know who votes for these things. Not, and again, not just the Trump voters in the United States, the Brexit voters in Britain, the five-star voters in Italy, you know, the Fidesz voters in, in um, Hungary. We know who these guys are. Yeah. These are not the lower, you know, rungs of the proletariat. These are middle-class folks. It's funny. I mean, I, I for a long time, I, I lived in the two worst places to try and do an anatomy of the United States, if you really wanted to understand this country and its sort of demographic posture, which is to say Manhattan and Los Angeles, right? But now I live in Queens which is kind of a, an island of red or red-tinged, almost, well, more than almost, MAGA-style republicanism in a sea of blue, right? And, you know, I, everywhere I go in my neighborhood, 
There are shopkeepers, store owners, and, and a lot of them have very legitimate complaints about, for instance, the way the city and the state has levied fines for, you know, if you're out under COVID restrictions, if you're out having a drink at, and it's 11.01 p.m., you're past curfew, here's a $50,000 fine. You know, at a time when New York tourism and service industry is already in tatters, it's like they want to just drive people out of business. But the conversation that's coming up more and more and more is, I don't want to get vaccinated. I'm not going to make my, my customers show me a vaccine card. I'll just close my business down. And, you know, it's, it's, it's people I know have gone to rallies, you know, oh, well, it's not anti-vax. Well, yeah, it is. It's just dressed up as something a little more clever than that. But every one of these people makes way more money than I do per annum and ever did. Yep. They are successful. They send their kids to the best schools. I like them by and large. I mean, they're personable, wonderful people, but you just, it's like plan nine from outer space. I just, I don't understand it. You know, I don't understand. I talk a lot in the book about resentment. Yeah. And I even go a little highfalutin and intellectual and talk about, you know, Nietzschean resentment, you know, that kind of even deeper thing than resentment, this kind of itching anger at everybody that somehow life isn't the way you wanted it to be. And, and part of the reason I went down this road is I had many of the same experiences you did. I mean, it was stuck between my teeth that five years ago, friends back home, I come from a, you know, I probably should point this out because I always have to point it out because people think I grew up in some Tony suburb and with professor parents and all that. I grew up in a factory town. Right. Um, you know, I grew up not poor, but kind of, you know, within shouting distance of poor working class, which is what I was. And um, guys that I knew that had grown up in pretty sketchy environments are, are like literally calling me from their boat or their in-ground swimming pool and saying, Tom, you just don't understand how completely fucked up this country really is. And I'm like, I'm sorry, did this occur to you on your way from your four bedroom house on the way to your boat that you were going to take your two college educated kids out yep. on? Is that when it occurred to you how screwed up and how, how totally, you know, that America had completely betrayed you? Is that when it occurred to you? And I just found myself saying, you know, the people that are the angriest at democracy are just people who think that they are not respected enough. And one thing we have to talk about here in America, Michael, is they're all white. This is white anxiety. I mean, this is a huge racially charged issue. You know, I was talking with a friend of mine from back home and he was talking about our neighborhood. And I grew up in one of these old, you know, working class neighborhoods. There was a factory, there were smokestacks. There were triple decker houses. There were brown, um, not brownstones, but apartment blocks. Right. You know, and he's like, and we had a candy store and a barbershop. And I said, look, you're not upset about the factories being gone because you would never have worked there in your darkest day. And none of us who went to school there and grew up there ever saw our future as, you know, like working in and getting our fingers smashed in an OSHA non-compliant, right. you know, textile mill. And so what you're upset about is the barbershop across the street from the factory is now a Spanish church and you hate it. And he's like, well, you know, it was a better time then. And I said, no, that you think it was a better time. I said, don't don't hand me that. I talk a lot in the book about false nostalgia. A different friend of mine who said, well, you know, I remember when times were good and these factories were full. And I said, that memory is physically impossible because you and I broke the windows in that factory when it was empty in the early 1970s. You cannot, you literally cannot be remembering the thing you think you remember. Well, this is the thing, right? The instrumentalization of nostalgia as a force for, for political reaction, right? I mean, and, and we talk about, I mean, you, you go through the list of countries. I mean, Russia is a past master at this. You yes. know, it, it is the return of the Czechist security state and a, a great power in the making 
absence the ideology that everybody found a little bit ridiculous and that put you know 20 million either dead or even more in, in, in the gulag right we can have the kgb back without all the, the the trappings that made it so unpleasant and we can have a powerful man in in the kremlin who is shoving the west's nose in their own hypocrisy and their own lies it's so interesting to me because- the, the cab driver who had the i mean you even saw this by the mid 90s the cab driver i had i'm, I'm going to sound like tom friedman but okay it's a real cab driver story with you know, a picture of Andropov clipped to his sun visor. And I'm like, of all the leaders to choose. And I said, don't you? I said, you know, he said, those were good days. And I said, well, I was here then. I said, I was here in 1983. I said, you were standing in line. I stood in line for food. And he said, I said, and you weren't free. And he said, we were free enough. We wash out all the bad part and just say, I remember being young and having fun. Exactly. Roy Medvedev, you know, the, the anti-Stalinist dissident historian who was chucked out of the Communist Party and chivied by Andropov's KGB, won the FSB as of 2006 issues this annual prize for literature, art, sculpture, cinema, whatever. First one went to Medvedev for a doorstop biography of Andropov. Now, this is a guy who was his nemesis, who was his persecutor, right? And what does he fault him most of all for? allowing the reforms which led to Gorbachev and Perestroika, which led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yep. So again, you, you, you had one job, KGB, keep the state and the empire intact, and you failed at that. Let's bring that back without, as I say, all the unpleasantness. Nostalgia is a, a misremembrance of history, right? Fundamentally, it is. It is the- and, it's, and it's like a middle-aged, I keep looking around me because the people, and of course, um, everyone who asks me about this book says, well, the answer is more education, right? I'm like, no, the answer is not more education because the people that are most like this are middle-aged people, you know, my age, late middle, I'm, I'm 60. You know, people that lived through a time when they took civics classes and the golden age of public education and cheap college and all that. But I feel like it's a giant white male midlife crisis as well. Yeah. That a lot of this is just dissatisfaction of an aging population. And there there are a couple of scholars, and I mentioned them in the book, who have kind of looked around the world and said, this is in part an illiberal movement being driven by an aging population that's mostly just pissed off that it's not 30 anymore. Right. And then, as you say, the old neighborhood has changed. It's not the same. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, the the, the TV show that I think must be a, a compliment to your book, and everyone was watching it in lockdown, was The Sopranos. Because that really captured, I mean, it, it told through the lens of a crime family and a guy in, in therapy and all that. But really, what was that show about? That was about fan de siècle America, changing demographics, changing sort of cultural anxieties. 9-11 just happened at the tail end of that series. And yeah, it was about decline and fall, right? Yeah. The perception of decline and fall and how it affect even fucking mob boss in Jersey. And how much did you find yourself? You know, I mean, it's I mean, the, the Sopranos was a sneaky show, kind of like Breaking Bad, which was also a tone poem about middle age. Right. Let's face it, mm-hmm. uh, about middle aged men. But, you know, the Sopranos, that scene, you find yourself sympathizing with this sociopathic killer. Like when he walks up to the kid who's wearing a hat in a restaurant, yep. which is one of my favorite moments. And he says, what are you? That's you on Twitter. That's you on Twitter. Put your fucking shoes on in the plane. That's me. I know. It's like people keep saying to me, wow, you're like Tony Soprano telling the kid to take his hat off. And I'm like, you know, he wasn't wrong about everything. I mean, when I go back to my hometown, I see it through, you know, the eyes of my younger self. And the empty storefront is where I bought bubblegum cards for five cents. And the Spanish church is where I got my first haircut. 
And the, the Russian evangelical church was the American Legion post where my parents used to go wear their uniforms and, you know, sing songs on St. Patrick's Day. But it doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to other people who are just as American as I am. This is what I think a lot of people don't want to accept. And you'll notice, and Michael, as we're talking about this, you notice how fast all that economic anxiety shit just goes away. It's like, we, oh, yeah, right. That was the easy explanation. That was the convenient explanation. But to, to just be social sciencey about it for a moment, I keep challenging people who come up with that to operationalize that in some way. I want you to show me how income inequality or globalization actually tracks with illiberal you know, voting behavior. Yeah. And it's always just kind of assumed. And, I, and I'm like, well, if that were the case, then the poorest neighborhoods in America, some of the most destroyed neighborhoods in America would be, you know, the most illiberal neighborhoods in America. And they're not the big streak of the most kind of Trumper, anti-democratic, solid, ruby red, you know, Fox addicted part of America is the Ohio Valley, which, you know, is devastated. But that devastation, I mean, West Virginia, which was a democratic state for years, turned red not five years ago, but in 2020, excuse me, in 2000, rather. The Thomas Frank critique, what's the matter with Kansas? Yes. And I talk a lot about Frank in the book. Right. I mean, it's it's the materialist conception of history, which is kind of this holdover of the old left, the Marxian left, which never really- it, It's like parlor, it's like a parlor game version of Marxism. Well, tell me how people are living and I'll tell you how they're voting. And it's simply not true. Yeah. No, it, it always reminds me of, if, you, if you've seen the, or read the, the Coast of Utopia, the Tom Stoppard play about uh, Alexander Hertzson. When I think it's like Bakunin walks in and, and Karl Marx is a minor figure and Bakunin is shouting, I have just spent two weeks with the French working class. And Marx goes, really? What are they like? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, let, let us impose our academic conceptions on what a, a, a population or a demographic is thinking. A mountain of evidence to the contrary. We will still push everything into that Procrustean bed of analysis, right? And, and you know, Frank, in, in what's the, I think Frank, you know, his, his most recent book about populism, I don't think is... I think it's just wrong in, in a lot of particulars, but, or I shouldn't say in the particulars, I think it's kind of wrong headed in what he thinks he's looking at, but in what's the matter with Kansas, he gets so close to it where he's like, why do these people keep voting for the thing that grinds them into the dust? And I think he starts to realize that, you know, hey, maybe it is an economics. Maybe it is this sense that of a nagging right. sense of cultural inferiority. You know, he's a man of the left and he talks a lot about the relationship between capitalism and voting. And I, I'm taking nothing away from the book. I think it's a great book. But I think we really have to think hard. And I added a chapter, I should say added. I mean, there is a chapter in the book that talks about how this cultural sense of inferiority is being inflamed beyond reason, not just by Fox News, which is a totally malevolent influence at this point in our history, but by the internet and hyperconnectivity. You know, it used to be that people in Ohio or Indiana or, or even in my hometown, they kind of took pride in not really knowing much about how people lived in Manhattan or San Francisco, and they didn't care. They said, hey, I sushi is raw fish. We don't eat that here. Um, you know, we eat barbecue. We kill, my hometown was kielbasa. We make our own kielbasa. You know, we, we don't eat that crap. But this kind of homogenization of the culture has made a lot of people just constantly live in the homes of people who are wealthier and live nearer to water than they do and has made them internalize that, well, I must be a loser because I don't live there. And that's unfortunate. I mean, I, I did an interview in Omaha 
and someone said, what do you have, you know, what advice do you have for people hearing us in Nebraska? I said, I've been to Nebraska, I've been to Omaha. It's a beautiful place. It is a beautiful countryside. Omaha is a great town. I said, stop comparing yourself to other people. Stop living as though you are being measured. I I said, 90% of you, you don't want to live in San Francisco. It's a tough place to live. You know, stop comparing yourselves to what you're seeing on television and the internet. And, you know, start thinking about other people as just normal people who get up in the morning and go to work every day instead of these terrifying, you know, elites in Los Angeles who, you know, are plotting against you every day. Well, let's talk about, I mean, you, you go after the, the populist right, but you also go after, I think what, what's fair to say, the populist left as well in the book, right? Uh, yeah. So, you know, to turn this kind of on its head, you've got this lumpen bourgeoisie in the red states addicted to their Fox News, agitated with racial anxiety about the changing demographics of their neighborhood or the neighborhood just one couple blocks down. What is the left doing that's sort of fanning the flames of this national suicidal stupidity? Well, before everybody gets their hair on fire about both sidesism, I'll just point out that at this point in our history, I mean, the real authoritarian danger in this country is the, is the American right. I don't even want to call it the right. This authoritarian glob of whatever it is that has emerged from the wreckage of the Republican Party and is now basically a danger to the Constitution. But the American left, I think there are two problems with the American left. First is there is a fundamentally unserious streak in the American left. It's the kind of thing where you're facing this existential crisis of democracy and the Democrats in Congress are arguing over tiny lines in the infrastructure bill and then going on recess in August. You know, this is not the this is not what a serious party does when it's come to power based on the notion that we are facing an existential threat. The bigger problem of unseriousness, I think, is the kind of of movement you and I have talked about so many times of the intolerant and childlike left that alienates ordinary voters and people of goodwill who would normally be on their side when they realize that, you know, there are stores burning during, you know, uh, demonstrations and protests because there are a bunch of bored college kids who have decided to be protest tourists. It's the idea that, you know, only in this affluent and peaceful and secure of a society could we have, you know, people losing their shit about Halloween costumes at Yale, you know, and I think ordinary people who say, look, I don't don't go to Yale. I don't have an Ivy League degree. I just kind of get up and I go to work every morning. This is ridiculous. And I think when the story of democratic decline and collapse is finally written, I think that the the unseriousness of the American left is going to be a part of that story. And I I'll, I'll track this along with an example from something you and I both worked on a lot, which is the rise of authoritarianism in Russia. And one of the things that struck me, because I didn't see, I actually thought Russia, when it came out of its Soviet period, had a much better shot at democracy, and I was much more optimistic about it. What I did not count on, and that I know you and I have talked about many times, was the utter fecklessness of the Russian liberals. Yeah. Who, you know, while while the the power guys are, you know, building the power ministries and the former KGB guys are building a base of power and kind of rotting out those few infant democratic institutions. You've got the Russian left arguing with itself about, I, I love this expression, when David Remnick said one of them was running to was running for prime minister as if he was campaigning to become head of the math department. You know, and I think we're seeing that now, this kind of, you know, 
who's really in charge, who's the purest among the purest, who really understands the people, you know, and in, and meanwhile, these other folks are very busily, decon, you know, um, basically destroying democracy, while a bunch of intellectuals on the left, both in Russia and here are, you know, arguing about things that have literally no meaning to the average person. No, I, to me, the, what you're saying was most encapsulated in the last election when John Lewis and Jim Clyburn both came out and said, you know, this slogan, defund the police, it's great for Twitter and it makes you feel good if you're a progressive lefty. But it's one of the worst things that could happen to the Democratic Party. A progressive lefty in a safe suburb, by the way. A safe suburb, right. And they, they were citing specifically the toll that such a program would have on black communities, which mm -hmm. actually want their communities policed. Well, I, in the book, you know, I, I quote somebody whose I think liberal credentials are impeccable, uh, Mark Lilla at Columbia. And, you know, Lilla has been on this as well. And he's taken a lot of flack from his own comrades on the left, where he said, look, you know, we are not we on the left are not immune from this kind of self-regarding, self-centered, narcissistic approach to politics that that has destroyed the American right, which, you know, he, he talks about he goes right after Reagan, as all liberals do, that, you know, Reagan said the what's good for you is good for you. And you don't ever think about anybody else. And then he drops this bomb that I actually quote in the book because it really, you know, makes liberals light their hair on fire when he says, look, grievance politics, basic identity politics, basically Reaganism for lefties. Yeah. Um, which is a great line. And he's trying to say, look, you know, this this is just cheerleading with slogans that may have some value to them. But as you point out, you know, is really something that is a, a very privileged and small group of people can reassure each other with without really thinking first in, in terms of its substantive impact, like defund the police on actual human beings. I have had this argument with friends on the uh, in the Democratic Party and on the left because, of course, you, you know that I am a partisan for the Democrats now because I think they are the only backstop against this authoritarian movement. And I keep saying, look, even if you think it's a good idea, it is a terrible strategy. It's destroying you. You know, it's hurting you at the polls. You are going to lose that. What is the point of this level of purity and self congratulation if you end up, you know, losing the House of Representatives and this circles back to the thing I keep talking about in the book, which is that politics for everyone has simply become self-actualization. We live in a post-policy environment. It's not about <clears throat> what we can actually get done, how much money we're going to spend, what we can accomplish, how we can negotiate. It's basically about how do I feel about me and how is what I am saying politically, how does that make me feel about myself? That, that's unsustainable. And on this point of purity, yeah, one of the things that, that you and I have both noticed and I think been equally aggrieved about in the last two weeks is this withdrawal from Afghanistan. And to its credit, the media, which had been assailed by the right as simply just carrying water for Biden, and certainly there were examples where I think, you know, editorialization got the better of yeah. just straight reporting, to say the least. But the media has done a fairly good job in some cases, a really exemplary one. I mean, I, I think of my old friend and colleague, Clarissa Ward in Kabul in a fucking hijab as the Taliban have taken over the city, you know, conducting street interviews with these guys. The media has done a pretty good job of showing, actually, Joe, this is a complete and utter snafu. And it's it's on you as president. I mean, there's plenty of blame to go around across multiple presidencies, not least of which is the last guy who did a deal with the Taliban. But nobody with a pair of working eyes is going to look on this and say, immaculate success. You know, when you got 17-year-old kids falling from the wheels of C-17s and now, you know, the deadliest terror attack ISIS has carried out 
since the coalition went to war with ISIS in 2014, against American troops, that is. And what I've seen is a kind of closing of the ranks among Democrats who you and I have both aligned with in the last several years because of the, the menace posed by the new Republican Party under Donald Trump and now the Republican Party after Donald Trump. But there's this, this fear that criticism or skepticism of this administration's line is somehow going to conjure up or the return of you know Cheeto Jesus back into the White House, and it's going to dismantle everything that we've fought for in an existential struggle against neo-authoritarianism. No, and that's just not how it works, you know. And that, yeah. that's actually really bad for democracy when you're when you're that party political. You know, one thing that I think that uh, the Democrats were closing ranks and circling those wagons. No one's going to change their mind based on this, right? You know, this notion that well, there is a sliver of undecided voters who in fact can swing elections. They don't vote on this stuff. They don't vote on foreign policy. They don't, I've been taking some hits because I've said, look, we were in Afghanistan for 20 years because no one cared enough about it to make a decision. And that's on the voters. I support what Biden's doing. This is the part that's so maddening about dealing with our friends to the left of us, because we say to them, look, we are on your side. This was a failed war. It's been a failed war for 15 plus years. And And I think Biden's made the right decision and he's got to do this thing. And they're like, well, you're not enough on our side. And it's like, no, no, we've seen this movie. This is how you get, you know, cults of personality. And I think this notion that somehow we cannot have adult conversations about what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, while still saying that even while I'm saying this is going wrong, I'm going to vote for the guy again. Mm -hmm. It's almost like it's inconceivable to have that discussion. And I think this is where Democrats need to kind of get their nerve back. They've been so scalded by this notion. What really this notion that, you know, if you criticize the president, he go, you know, everything falls apart. What drives me nuts is that they don't take on board the criticisms they should, which about things like defund the police and how you know silly that was. And they are overly allergic to legitimate and good faith criticisms about accountability and who messed this up and who ought to get fired at state or defense, what's going on in the NSC. Again, it is almost a childlike tribalism that has made any kind of politics impossible. And I I think we ought to be careful here, Michael, to say, listen, you know, hashtag not all Democrats, right? I think we can say all Republicans, because anybody who's left in the Republican Party at this point you know, has made a gruesome decision, you know, politically ghastly decision, in my view. But I think, you know, there are Democrats of good conscience and and reasonableness, but they repeatedly get shouted down more on social media than other places, but even in the press. But that is, I have to say, and and here's where, you know, just being an editor in a journalism comes into play. I mean, unfortunately, we live in a news cycle where Twitter has become the bellwether for what is news, what is important, what needs to be said and and discussed. So I think the, the rush to try and control the narrative. And I mean, the thing that, that I bridled at the most was for six years, and you know, Olivia Nuzzi at, at New York Magazine wrote a really great piece after Biden won the election where she said, you know what, I'm worried because for six long years, people like myself, anybody in the press who was holding Trump and his cronies to, to account were being lionized by the so-called resistance. You know, we were the new heroes. We were the champions. The democracy dies in darkness and blah, blah, blah. And it's only a matter of time before that pendulum swings back because it's part of our job, at least those of us who try to get at the truth, 
to be critical and skeptical minded of whoever's in power. Right. And that's going to be the Democrats now. Yes. And the minute, lo and behold, the minute there was a foreign policy fiasco and it was a fucking fiasco and the press started reporting on it, honestly, I mean, frankly, on a 24 seven basis, because this was a major issue. I mean, there's America's longest war ending in ignominy and now in a terrorist attack. I've seen people retweet. I get it all the time. Things that just crawl right up to that line in the sand of calling my lot enemies of the people, you know, but coming from the other side. And this is the the damage that Trump and years of living in this shit has done. The opposition has absorbed some of the bad lessons. I get this all the time from people who say, you know, I really liked your views and you seemed really moderate. And I I thought you were a very intelligent guy. And I always say, yes, you thought that right up until the moment I disagreed with you. I was telling you what you wanted to hear and now I'm not. And you're you're not a big boy or a big girl enough to to handle that. I, I love it when people on Twitter I've never even heard of and don't even know follow me make an announcement that they've decided to unfollow me for something I've said. <laughs> you're living in this solipsistic void where you think you're having some kind of dialogue or conversation with me and that I give a shit. I mean, sometimes I do if it's a, a fair-minded critique or there's a, a real argument there. But when it's, meh, you know, fuck off. And you don't really care about this subject matter. My favorite one are the people that ha- that don't know anything about me and say, well, you you clearly have been a mole, you know, for the Republicans and a Trumper all along. And I'm like, yeah, that's why I've been enduring five years of, you know, death threats and attempts to get me fired and harassment. And it was all the deepest of deep covers, you stupid child. And I think social media, you know, makes it so easy to fling these accusations. But the word you just use, and I want to come back to this, is solipsism, the narcissistic kind of impulse that comes behind this. Because I notice that whenever I get hate mail, I get hate mail from the left, not as often as I do from the right, but I get it from all sides. What always characterizes all of these is, you know, how dare you see the world differently than I do? Very rarely. And I actually answer some of the more reasonable when people say, well, look, I really have a question about this, or I really think this is an issue. I appreciate people who are rational and polite about it, but um, 99% of all the crap that flows to any of us who write in the public eye really comes down to, I just don't like what you said. And nobody can have it have that view. I mean, it's impossible. And and I really feel like it's almost like in an earlier age, these would be like scrawled on construction paper with crayons. Yeah. These are grown men and women. These are, you know, people fulminating and are, you know, people that hold jobs and otherwise responsible people, but they are simply incapable of thinking through anything that is that discomforts them. And the Trumpers were always the worst about this. You know, like they, everything was, you aimed this comment or this article or this piece directly at people like me, you hate me. And it's like, look, I don't know how to break this to you. I don't know you. I don't, this isn't about you. You know, we're not girlfriends here. We don't actually have a relationship. You know, I think social media and the increasing narcissism of a society that, you know, again, since the end of the Cold War, since the, you know, gigantic expansion that began in the 80s, um, really live in a very kind of unserious and pampered bubble. And it leads people, I mean, it's actually dangerous. I mean, this is what makes people want to, you know, drive to the Capitol with a bomb because they somehow think, that they're having a personal interaction with Nancy Pelosi or, you know, that somehow this is all about them and their lives. If I'll be nostalgic for a moment and I'll say, geez, I kind of liked it better 40 years ago when people said I vote and they're far away from me and I'm far away from them. And that's, that's a way to keep, I do not have a personal relationship with the president of the United States. 
but we have become, you know, kind of fanboys and um, deranged kind of stalkers about every political and public figure because we think it's all about us all the time. For the longest time, I mean, I, I think you're probably the same persuasion, but you know, the people in our camp would want to run from the hills of moral equivalency between the United States and anti-democratic, authoritarian, not to say even totalitarian regimes, right? But there is something now culturally which seems to me very totalitarian in our society, you know? And part of the mission of going after people you disagree with. I mean, it's not like you're getting out there and, and, and advocating genocide or you're getting out there and advocating, you know, child slaughter. You're making an argument about politics. It's a reasonable argument. It can be disagreed with. It can be strongly disagreed with, right? Like Thomas Frank is not going to troll you on Twitter. He might write a response to your book right. and your reply to his, but that's two intellectuals having, having a fair-minded debate. But, you know, and I, I've noticed this a lot for many years now, Implicit in this mission is to try and demoralize you and to degrade your willingness to even engage anymore. And to silence you. To silence you. You know, the, I just came across this in researching my book. The Stasi had this concept they worked up called, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, so forgive me, my German friends, but Zerzeitzung. And it means to corrode or decay a, a target, harass it into the point of total submission, basically make it disappear. And you do that through constant harassment, through constant chivying. And I mean, you've been subject to death threats. You've had to handle this in your workplace. Fox News, when they go after somebody, there is, especially Tucker Carlson, the idea is to whip up a virtual and possibly even physical lynch mob to basically remove this person from the chessboard, right? To, right. to, to make them an unperson. Well, this actually happened to me a couple of, uh, probably about a month ago, when Kabul was falling. And I was sitting there and I was watching the fall of Kabul. And I looked at my phone and I saw Christy Nome, you know, dressed like a rodeo queen going through the super spreader event at Sturgis on a horse. Yep. And I said, this is an unserious country. Like she is a symbol of the unseriousness. And I, these juxtaposed images to me summed up everything about America in 21, you know, in, in 2021 that I didn't think much of it. Because, I mean, okay, you know, Christy Noem put Donald Trump's face on a model of Mount Rushmore. I mean, this is the very, you know, epitome of unseriousness. And um, I started getting all this, like, hate mail and, you know, people deluging my workplace. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And it was Fox. That, that somebody at Fox had done this thing, you know, about Harvard professor, because I teach part-time at the night school at Harvard. But of course, <laughs> Harvard, you know, it's like, that is a Yang worship word, you know, um, you know, you will trigger with Harvard. And people were literally like in a frenzy about that I was an enemy of the American people because I think Christy Nome is basically ridiculous. And it was this, you know, I can't, you don't respect the flag and, you know, people leaving, you and I will go toe to toe because I'm, you know, my kid's a veteran. And I'm like, what the fuck is everybody talking about here? And that's when I had to backtrack because anytime, you know, this, anytime that happens, you immediately backtrack up to about two or three, you know, sites where this kind of flying monkey thing is triggered. And I was like, oh, there it is. All right. So it was Fox. But it, but it was very clear. The effort at Fox was, you know, let's pull out all the trigger words for the clicks and the eyeballs of, you know, Harvard and professor and unpatriotic. And, you know, within a week I had, you know, one of their hosts railing on the radio that I hate America and that I've never helped our country. And I'm like, you know, I'm about to 
I'm about to leave federal service after 26 years of sterling federal service. It's just like you say, it's this attempt to kind of whip up a mob that will then where you then say, even if you're not intimidated to the point of not wanting to say something, you just think it's too much trouble. Right. You just say, you know what, this is just, I have a good life. You know, I have a nice deck and I can have a martini outside and, you know, who needs this headache? You're just playing into the stereotype of a coastal right, right. with that description, my friend. You see, this is the other side of it too. They expect the reflexive reaction when basically they're assailing you of being an elitist and condescending to 99% of America. They want you to respond with, no, 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 that's not it. They want you to be on the defensive. But when you have morons who are writing you unlettered like diatribes threatening your life and because you, you mocked a woman on a horse as the, as the United States is losing its longest war. And implicit in this idea is, you know, you think you're better than me? Actually, the answer is yes, I do. Yeah, yeah I kind of do. Yes, I do, because I can hold two fucking thoughts in my head simultaneously, you know? Well, and also I've never threatened anybody or tried to get them fired because of who they don't like or, or like. And I think one of the things that really strikes me is that Fox and talk radio and these other outlets are very good at creating this image that people have. And, you know, I am constantly amazed that people who know me as you do, or when they, when I go out on the road and talk, they're like, so, you know, they like, they have it in their head that I grew up, you know, in Lexington and I went to the Dalton school and then Andover and then Harvard. And it's like, uh, you know, and I spent my youth singing the whiff and poof song, you know, with the with the, you know, Yale and all this crap. They were singing poor little buttercup like. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I was, the, you know, me shepherd. Bonesman, yeah. you know, recruited into the CIA. Uh, from- and, and when I say, well, you know, no, actually, my parents, you know, my my parents had a ninth and 10th grade education. My mom was actually homeless and, you know, as a kid. My dad, you know, grew up during the depression. I had to work my way through school and they just look and they're like, no, that can't be right. You're, you are an elitist who lives, you know, in a glass tower uh, next to the Transamerica building. And it is this divisive engine of resentment. And, and to, you know, to bring it back to what I've been writing about, it is this constant creation of resentments between people that, that aren't even based in reality anymore. To leave politics out of it for a moment, you know, I actually bring up in the book the HGTV effect, right? People watching home and garden TV who are getting mad. I felt it myself. I stopped watching it because I was I was like, why are 28-year-old office workers thinking about which wall to knock down in their $1.5 million Toronto townhouse? You know, we do this to ourselves. We drink this poisonous competitive resentment all day long. Why do they have got why do they have granite countertops? Why does that guy have, you know, the top package of Alexis? You know, how come I didn't go to Disney three times this year and I just went once? I mean, what we are literally making ourselves insane with this and then exporting it to politics. That's when it becomes really dangerous because then you just start voting based on it's negative partisanship. You're not voting because you want this or you want that policy or you think this would be good for your community. You just say, listen, I'm just here to make the other guy mad. And you saw that with Trump. I'm voting for Trump because it'll piss you off. And I, you know, I used to say to people, look, it, it hurts the country, but it's not going to do anything to me personally. To vote for it's, In fact, I gained from the Trump tax cuts. It doesn't hurt me. And of course, five years later, the Ohio Valley still looks like the Ohio Valley. Five years later, you know, uh, Foxconn didn't go to to Wisconsin. Lordstown did shut down. And now it's like, well, now we got to find new scapegoats. Now we've got to find a whole different set of people to hate 
over things that we voted for that blew up in our face that we can never accept responsibility for doing. And, you know, Ohio, Ohio's got problems and their Republican nominee, they're trying to decide between three complete crackpots. I mean, that's like it's going to be Josh Mandel or J.D. Vance or Barbara. I can't think of her name. No, the other the third one. I mean, that's what you're going to do to yourself to say the way we're going to get Ohio out of a rut is potentially to elect these, you know, charlatans. You think Josh Hawley is really there to care about the people of Missouri? Yeah. Elise Stefanik gives a shit about anybody who lives in upstate New York? Seriously? Right. Well, so we you spend a long time making this grim diagnosis, then what is the prescription, if any? What can the United States do to kind of correct itself in this, this respect? I don't know. I shouldn't give away the end of the book. I got I went kind of dark at the end of the book more than I thought, you know, because you were talking me through this many late nights that, you know, I was I was kind of blocked on this for a few months. I, I kind of hit a point where I said, I, I can't be saying what I think I'm saying. You know, I didn't want to reach the conclusions I was reaching, which is always, you know, a book is at least honest. Right. You know, if you reach the conclusion of a book and you say there, it's just like I thought it would be when I started it. You probably haven't written a very honest book. I got to the end and said, geez, I, I wish I were coming to some other conclusion here. I put forward a few small projects about military service, about, you know, expanding the size of Congress, about reforming the way parties do things that I actually think are achievable by a small number of people of goodwill. Mm. But I have to tell you that I think we're in for a long, dark tunnel where democracy is concerned, because I don't think anything is going to solve this except demographics. Yeah. I think the people that are, you know, 68 years old and sending around, you know, racist Facebook memes about Kamala Harris, they are never going to climb out of that tree. And the only thing that's going to change is eventually they're going to get old and pass away and not vote. But your 67-year-old grandfather who is still sending you memes about, you know, COVID hoaxes is not going to change. And I think that's something that requires, again, Biden didn't want to deal with this. He he doesn't want to believe this. I think a lot of people in the center right especially don't want to believe it. But I think, you know, this is where an adult conversation becomes important about what do you do when roughly 30% of the country is just irretrievably and unmovably anti-democratic and illiberal in every way. And my answer is that you have to just turn out in large numbers and keep outvoting them until you pass this kind of demographic danger zone. I think Democrats are just not internalizing that. You and I are sitting here talking that we don't know what the outcome is going to be in the California recall, but you're already seeing the pieces that are coming out of California Democrats saying, holy crap, you know, people don't seem interested in this. They're not showing up. They're not really, you know, we're having trouble with Think looking ahead and projecting turnout, you could end up with Larry Elder as the governor of California, and everybody's going to be standing around with this who farted look on their face going, it wasn't me. How did this happen? Right. I think people have to take this more seriously. Yeah. And, and the other thing that worries me, I mean, you talk about sort of these people who really don't give a shit about the, the flyover country types that they're appealing to. The other side of this is the, the market for whatever you want to call this disinformation, fake news, or just utter conspiratorial bullshit. I mean, you know, I'm seeing people who they might be politically unsavory, but they're not imbeciles. They're not they're not troglodytes, but they have now been pushing this horse dewormer crap right. as a viable treatment for COVID. Now, why are they doing it? Do they really believe in a scientific conspiracy to hush up, you know, anti-vax? No. 
they believe that they're going to make money. And they are because it's generating clicks. But I also think there's something more to it, Michael. I think some of them, you know, this is classic Orwellian double thick, right? Where you can sort of know the truth, but believe something that is untrue at the same time. And I think some of these people are, are doing this and saying, yeah, it's the attention economy and I win, you know, I get the clicks, I get the money. It's also, and I talk about this in the book, this problem of, of um, narcissism and boredom. And by the way, as much as I'd like to take credit for this genius insight, Eric Hoffer wrote about it 70 years ago. I mean, yeah. we had plenty of warnings from Eric Hoffer, Christopher Lash, Hannah Arendt, you know, plenty of people saw this coming. Where believing this stuff and agitating for it makes life interesting. It gives you a heroic role. It gives you something to do because otherwise you're left with saying, wow, this pandemic, which, you know, is just every century, you're going to get something that's going to rip through the population. You know, a hundred years ago, it was, it was Spanish flu. This pandemic is not a heroic cause built on conspiracies and dark forces aligning against us in Tony Fauci's office. It's just a fucking pandemic. And I'm just going to have to go through the pain in the ass stuff of wearing a mask and washing my hands and eating out less until, you know, the transmission rate drops and we go from red to yellow. Nobody wants to hear about that in modern America. That's dull. That requires sacrifice and a daily kind of commitment to just being an ordinary but civic citizen. Right. It's right. always got to be, no, no, they're keeping it from us. That horse dewormer is the secret you know, cure that no one wants to let you know. It, it, is, it is absolutely maddening because, again, this is like talking to nine-year-olds. I mean, this is like talking to dangerous armed nine-year-olds with driver's licenses and whiskey, right? you know, who keep saying, no, no, it can't possibly be that I just have to go to work and live my life and take care of my kids and feed my dog and mow my lawn. I am secretly Tony Stark. <laughs> you know, I am Bruce Wayne. Right. And I'm going to unravel this, this pedophile, horse dewormer, adrenal gland stewing conspiracy somewhere. And, and it's nuts. It's mass psycho. I mean, Hoffer calls it mass psychosis. And I actually think we're in the grip of it. I don't disagree. I don't think how you, again, two, a pair of functioning eyes can, can come to any other determination. Tom, as always, it's, it's been a pleasure whining in our, well, I don't have a beer and neither do you. Sound like you do. <laughs> you're, the only, you're the only guy I would drop all these F-bombs with, Michael. So congratulations. Uh, that's what the show is there for, my friend. Um, <laughs> well, listen, I, I hope I encourage everyone, all three listeners of this program to go out and buy Tom Nichols' latest book, Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. And Tom also writes a regular column for USA Today and is a contributing writer to The Atlantic. Tom, anytime you want to come back, just, uh, well, you know where to find me. You'll be texting me some angry shit from Twitter later this afternoon. Yeah, I was going to say, we'll, we'll just carry this on in about 10 minutes. Exactly. But, uh, thank you for having me, Michael. I appreciate it. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to Foreign Office.